HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today you are listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are going to talk about some an interesting type of farming, a type of farming I'm not at all familiar with, salt farming. And we are on the line with the brother and sister team, Nancy and Lewis, of JQ Dickinson Saltworks. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So lovely to have you guys on. So you're down in Malden, West Virginia, and you guys are seventh-generation salt makers. Is that right? That's correct. Wow. So um, I, I guess I, I want to start at the beginning. Um, you know, there was light and there was dark, and, well, maybe not, maybe not quite that far back. But um, how did your family come to the salt-making business? Um, our uh, ancestor William Dickinson lived in Bedford County, Virginia, which is near Lynchburg, and he heard about the salt springs in the Kanawha County area of Virginia, and he saw an opportunity. So he and his brother-in-law came across the mountains, and they started a salt enterprise. So I, I, just for folks who aren't familiar, and I'm going to count myself in this group, can you maybe give us a sense of, um, you know, what are the variety of ways that one produces salt, and, and where does kind of your operation fit in that, in that kind of spectrum? Is it um, a normal way? Is it kind of off the cuff? Is it special in certain ways? If we can just get a sense of kind of an overview of how, how most salt that we're consuming is produced and kind of where you, where you guys are set apart in your, in your model? Um, sure. I guess uh, most people think of sea salt as one type of salt, which is made from ocean water. And then there's uh, mined salt, rock salt, which um, Morton salt is made, made that way. Um, also, there's a salt mined in Utah. 
Um, our salt comes from an underground, underground brine aquifer. Um, it's a 400-million-year-old ancient sea that is trapped below this area of West Virginia. And um, so we basically have a, a water well that we've drilled to this strata, and we pump the brine up and um, then evaporate it in, by solar evaporation in uh, special sunhouses. So it's a very different process than a lot. And um, there's only one other salt in the world that we know of that's made um, from underground brine, and that's made in Peru. So underground brine, if, if I'm just imagining correctly, it's basically like I, I dig a hole deep into the ground and I, and I hit a big, you know, space of salty water. Is that, is that more or less the gist? And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, when um, Dickinson was getting started, I, I mean, how far down, how did they know that the, 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 the brine aquifer was there? Brine um, at that point was bubbling up out of the ground, and um, there were a lot of animal tracks, and Native Americans were using it to make salt and, and cure their meats, um, but to get to the more saturated brine, you have to go deeper. So um, in order to drill, per se, they, they actually used hollow out, hollowed-out sycamore trees, and they drove them into the ground um, as the casing. Um, and so they drop a man down into the, the hollowed-out sycamore, and he would send buckets of, of water up and mud to get it deeper and deeper. So... It took our ancestors over two years to uh, drill their first well. Um, it took us about three weeks, and we thought that was a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a, it sounds like there was a gap in, in the production, that the, the family was, was producing the salt for a while and then stopped. What happened? Yeah, the, the Dickinsons actually, our ancestors were the last ones to produce here in Kanawha County. They were producing all the way up until 1945. But the biggest reason that the, the salt industry dissipated in this area was around 1861, there was a huge flood, which basically overtook what then was about 52 different furnaces. And at that, about that time, Kanawha County was one of the largest salt-producing areas in the country. And the markets were such at that time that it didn't make sense for most of the families to come back and rebuild, but the Dickinsons decided to do it. And they lasted until 1945, and they were the last ones. And actually kept producing brine for chemical industry up until the 80s. But then uh, Nancy and I started it back this summer, so we're uh, reviving it. Reviving it. So, I mean, you guys were what, just sitting around the kitchen table thinking like, hey, we got some extra time on our hands. Let's, you know, you know revisit this 200-year-old you know, family tradition. I mean, what what was the impetus for getting back into the salt business? Um, a, a couple of things. Uh, one, I, I'm a chef by by training, and I um, just always watch watch food trends. And several years ago, I guess probably ten years ago, I was in uh, on a trip in Europe and had some uh, salt from Sweden, which just blew me away. I didn't realize at the time that there was really a difference in salt, and the salt I tasted was just amazing. And so I've always, then I got kind of hooked into the salt trends and started watching it grow and, and saw what was happening. Um, at the same time, my husband is a, a 
student getting his master's degree in American history. He's actually a Ph.D. student now, but he wrote his master's thesis on the industrialization of this valley, the Canal Valley. So he was learning about my family, our family, um, through a totally different lens. And while he was doing research, I started thinking, you know, why aren't we making salt anymore? And I asked him one day, I said, did they stop making salt because the brine ran out? And he said, oh, no, there's plenty of brine there. It's just economic circumstances changed. And I said, you know, we, we need to be making salt. We could really have an opportunity, especially when, um, you know, this growing movement of chefs and consumers uh, who are really aware of, of where their food is produced and want to know where their food is produced um, I saw an opportunity, and I called Lewis, and I said, I think we need to start a business. So um, he said yes, and here we are. And here we are. Well, I want to I wanna, uh, tuck into some of the logistical aspects of, of that process, but before we go further, I would love if you could maybe describe the salt for us. I mean, I think, you know, you, you really hit the nail on the head that, you know, the evolution of um, cooking and the way home cooks and people are thinking about food has grown pretty dramatically in the last couple of decades. And now it's not uncommon to, you know, pop over to your friend's house and they've got, you know, three, four, five, six different types of salt that you can choose from depending on what you're going to be um, cooking and what stage of the cooking process you're in. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the flavor and the texture and, and where you see your salt um, kind of fitting into the cooking process. Um, sure. We, we consider it more of a, a finishing salt. Um, it's, it's crunchy. It's not, it's not a delicate slate like, uh, say, a Malden salt. A lot of people are familiar with that. They're um, famous pyramidal very thin flakes. Ours is a little chunkier. Um, it's a very bold flavor, um, yet balanced. Um, it's delicious is what we call it. <laughs> <laughs> it. It has a certain minerality and, and brininess to it. Um, and it. It's crunchy and it pops, and, and we feel like you don't have to use as much because you're getting the full flavor from it. And, you know, another great story that, that came out of this was it used to be known as the Great Canal Salt, and it was red. And, you know, back in the day, they didn't have refrigerators, so salt was key. It was key to preserving meats. And the salt from Canal County was entered in the first World's Fair in London and won first prize in 1851. So we think that's a great, a great part of our story. Yeah, there's a, well, it sounds like there's a lot of different historical components. One of the other things I thought was interesting is you actually um, post on your website the kind of nutritional information about the salt, um, you know, mostly obviously sodium, some calcium, say, some magnesium, and then some other trace minerals. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, it never really occurred to me to think about the nutritional components of salt or what is in salt or maybe what's not in salt. And, and maybe you can give us a sense of, as consumers, what should we be kind of looking for or expecting um, with regards to the, the nutritive benefits um, or maybe dangers of salt? Well, I, iodized uh, salt has iodine in it, but um, but it also, um, it has anti-caking agents in it, which are aluminum-based, I think, um, which, you know, that's not natural and that's not something we should really be consuming, most likely. Um, so we're an all-natural product, and you're getting these 
other, you know, just a trace of these other essential minerals. You know, calcium, magnesium is, is a big one, and um, potassium. So it's, you know, it adds a little extra, and we feel at 94% sodium chloride as opposed to 99% sodium chloride, you're, you're getting less sodium, but we've, ours has a bigger flavor, so you can actually use less but taste more. All right, so you decide you're going to get back into the salt making business. I'm guessing the first step is, you know, finding a place to to drill, to 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 reach the aquifer. Is that right? Right. Yeah, we have local consultants um, that that helped us with that. We actually went back to the original family farm here that was purchased by the Dickinsons in 1838. Although they had been in the area. Um, salt earlier than that, but we went back to the original farm and we found in the, the old company store the old log books that told us exactly where the brine was going to be, and that actually came to, to truth. So we were using their old records um, for, for what we were doing in the drilling process, which was kind of neat. So when you when you drill, um, you, you know you're setting up. Is it a is it a pump system? Is there is there multiple pumps? Um, how like what's the process for extracting the brine? Yeah, our our well is about 350 feet down, and we've got a small pump at the bottom of it, and we uh, flip a switch and and open the spigot, and and brine comes out, and whenever whenever it's needed. So um, and it. We feel like the supply is there, that it's replenished itself, the pressure's good, and it's it's perfectly clear. It's it's beautiful to, to witness. So now when it when it comes out, does it just look like water or it is it's perfectly clear at first and then the iron in it will oxidize so it'll change color. Um, but then we actually let the iron fall out of it so that it's it's perfectly clear again by the time we we hose it into the beds. So it's, it's, you're pumping it out, um, and then are, is there a col- is there a collection point that then you use to then you transport it to the beds, or you pump it and filter it and put it dir- directly into the beds? How does it get from kind of the pump to the bed? Yeah, we don't need to filter it, really. The only thing we do is we put it in a storage tank, which is we've got a tank that's 2,500 gallons, and uh, we naturally let the iron fall out of it. They didn't used to do that, and that's why it used to be the Great Canal Red Salt, but uh, ours is now perfectly white and beautiful because we do let the iron fall out of it. But then from the tank, we hose it again just through gravity. Um, the, The water will hose into the greenhouse into the beds and we fill them up three or four inches and and let nature take its course so when you say you let the iron fall out is that like uh you know when i make my french press coffee and the coffee grounds and the sediment if i let it sit long enough just falls to the bottom or is it something more more precise than that that's pretty much that's pretty much what it what it does, the uh, the iron gets heavier as it oxidizes, and it falls to the bottom. It just settles down to the bottom of the of the tank, and then um, we feed it off the side of the tank through big hoses, through gravity, and into the uh, greenhouse. And then- well, we also, if I could, we also want to use the iron 
so there's no waste to the process. We want to convert it into salt and animal licks, and uh, so we really do limit our waste. Yeah, that was my next question. So that that iron that you you said you you make into like salt licks for animals. So that's just like a block that you know different animals like to 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 lick, I guess. Right. We haven't um, made any yet. We're um, it's 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 amazing how little bit of an iron can can color the brine. So we're collecting the iron and we're doing research on on what it would take to make the animal licks. But um, we think that that is a good good use for us so we can be um, 100% using of our, of our product. We yeah. want to zero waste. That makes sense. I definitely have memories, not pleasant memories, of being a little kid and testing the salt licks that my dad used to buy when he was baiting deer. Um, I thought, well, if the deer are going to lick it, I want to see what it tastes like. <laughs> Not, not something I'd recommend. Well, I'm going to ask you to hang tight. We're going to take just a short break. Um, when we come back, I want to kind of continue down the exploration of the salt-making process. So hold on. We'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. All right, we're back. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and we are talking about salt farming. We're on the line with Nancy Bruins and Lewis Payne of JQ Dickinson Salt Works down in Malden, West Virginia. And so we had talked about um, the salt kind of getting to the beds. Um, so can you describe for folks who've never seen a salt bed, um, you know, what, we, what we're looking at? It's a, uh, what we do is we, it's, uh, we have a couple different greenhouses, but the original one was literally on the floor of the greenhouse. And, um, and they would be about 20 by 5 and they would be lined with a black 20-mil plastic, and which would obviously get it really hot. Um, you know, it would get 150 degrees in there, and so it, during the summer when we fill it up three or four inches in the bed, and we've had 12 beds in the greenhouse, um, it would evaporate down to about half within three or four weeks, and then we'd move it into another longer bed so that it would be... Um, not as deep, and we call those the crystallization beds, and they're in those just a few days. And after after a few days, you'll see the beautiful white crystals, and then we harvest the crystals, and uh, we actually have to let them dry a little bit. Um, and then we um, 
we'll process them and, and bottle them and market it. So, I mean, literally, it's you're you're basically letting nature do it, take its course. You're putting a, a you know water, so the salted brine water over kind of a, a large expanse, and it it just evaporates from the kind of heat in the greenhouse. Is there anything else that kind of facilitates the drying process? Well, you you need to control the humidity. In our first greenhouse, we've got an airflow going through there. Uh, in theory, you'd like to have a constant airflow with fans, but, um, you know, our mission is to be all natural and to be carbon neutral, so we're not using electricity. Uh, but I think ideally, if you had fans that control the humidity, that would be the ideal conditions. Um, but it's it it's heat and then it's humidity because you want the water to obviously be able to evaporate, but then also to leave the 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 greenhouse. Otherwise, it might condensate and drift back down in the beds, and that would just prolong your process. So. Ultimately, the drying process, I mean, really, the, it sounds like the, the main ingredient then is, is just time. Um, and I'm curious, does that, it, how does it change over the course of the year if you're not using any kind of other inputs with regards to kind of uh, a mechanized, you know, fan or other drying process? Does it, do, does it get impacted, you know, now it's March, you know, is it a, a faster dry, drying time or slower? I mean, I guess I would assume the summer would be the fastest because it's the warmest, but maybe that's not the case. Um, that's definitely the case. Uh, it, whereas it takes three to four weeks in the summer, it's been taking um, almost three months over the course of the winter. With the cloudy days and, you know, overcast, all this snow we've been having have uh, have slowed us down, but that wasn't really unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it makes a slightly diff- different uh, shape crystal in the winter. We found it's a, it's a smaller crystal, and it's um, like, like snowflakes almost. It's beautiful. So... So the water evaporates off of the bed, and you're left with what I would imagine is, you know, a, a long expanse covered with the white salt crystals. How do you then, you said then then you need to, to collect and then do another drying process for the crystals? Is that right? Uh, yes. There's, a, there's an, a byproduct called bittern, or in Japanese it's called nigari. And it's a liquid uh, mineral byproduct, and it's um, very nutritional as, as well as it, it's used in making tofu. So we, we're collecting that. We're getting ready to put that on the market as well. But um, So we have to separate the salt crystals from the bittern, and uh, we have some tools that were made by a local uh, West Virginia woodworker, Allegheny Treenware in Thornton, West Virginia, and... Um, we have a special rake. It's on our website and a, a scoop that we use. And um, so then we, we harvest the salt into cotton cloths um, that are very absorbent, and then we take it into our, our, our kitchen, our production facility, and um, let it dry and then um, put it in jars. Interesting. So is there any type of kind of grading or sorting process where – 
Uh, you know, I'm always curious when you, you know, you get the salt. It's so, so often like uniform in size. Is that just the natural way it's produced or is there kind of a, a separation where you have kind of like larger crystals and then you shake out and you have more fine crystals or it, everything just kind of goes like scooped from the drying bag into the jar that I would buy in the store? Um, no, there definitely are different size crystals and, uh we keep track of each harvest. You know, we'll harvest some, and then more crystals will will be produced in the same bed. And depending on the shape of those crystals, we'll either put them in our first first harvest or a second harvest. And, and we're collecting um, what we're calling our second harvest would be more of a, uh, a cooking salt. It's a very, very fine crystal. So we save the best first crystals for um, our prime product, our finishing salt. And sometimes we do um, have to grind those up, depending on how quickly the crystals have formed. They get a little bit too big, so we just quickly grind them and get them a little more uniform, so hmm. more pleasant experience. Um, and then, who who is kind of the regulating body for uh, for for this process? Do you work with the USDA, the Department of Ag and Markets? Who's making sure that you're salt production is, you know, safe for consumption? Uh, we work with the West Virginia Department of Agriculture as well as um, the Department of Health and Human Resources. They've all been out to look at our our facility and, and our process, and we have to, you know, let them know if we change anything. Uh, we're a little bit outside of their box. We don't we don't fit on any in any manual that they have. They're like, what are you doing? And, you know, they're nervous about water and, you know, contaminants and things like that. And we have to say, look, we're making salt. It's, it's a preservative. It's, it kills bacteria. Nothing can live in it. And it's, you know, there is no shelf life. And it, it's, so we, we have to make them kind of think outside of their, their normal routine. But um, they've been great to work with. And um, actually, they're excited about a new, new industry. Yeah. I was going to say, I couldn't imagine that they went to the, like, bookshelf and pulled off. They're like, oh, that's our salt farm manual, and now we'll just go out and check the boxes. And uh, right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about cost, um, you know, give just to give folks a sense of, I mean, I think kind of hearing you talk through the process, it, it seems very hand-on. It seems um, also like, you know, there's quite a bit of time involved, and so can you run us through, um, you know, the different types of kind of end-user products that you have and, and what the general cost range is for them? Yeah, we sell in three different containers. We sell a smaller jar, uh, which is a one-ounce jar. doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually quite a bit, and for $5 retail. And then we sell a larger jar, which is three-and-a-half ounces, uh, for $9.00. And then we have uh, one-pound bags that we sell. Uh, we can sell retail or wholesale. Um, those retail go for 25 and then half of that if we're selling wholesale. Got it. Um, well, and that's, too, if folks want to wanna check out the website, it's really beautiful, www.jqdsalt.com. 
Um, I've got a couple of questions. We're just about out of time, but I want to talk about two more things before we go, because obviously we've been hearing a lot in the national news about um, kind of water contamination in in West Virginia. And I'm wondering, obviously, because that is essentially the brine aquifer is your main um, you know, resource for the production. It, how do you, what are, what are things that you are doing or that you anticipate doing to make sure that you're able to kind of protect that resource for, for future generations? Well, you know, we got that question a lot recently since they've had water issues here in the Valley. Um, fortunately, we're on a farm. We're protected from that water source and those chemical companies. Uh, so we're a good bit away from that. Um, you know, through the process, we started testing the brine early on um, and just to make sure we knew exactly what was in it. And we actually constantly do that and to make sure there aren't any contaminants. But to be honest with you, that the recent episodes have, have not been related to what we're doing. Uh, it may have slowed our process down because we use water to clean our beds, but it, it did not affect our our, the quality of our product, but but you know we constantly do um, test test these things and and make sure that it's as clean as it always has been for four hundred million years. So yeah, well you have plenty of history on your side in that aspect. <laughs> um, right, and our um, well is is totally cased and protected for many ground contaminants that might get into it. So it um, we don't have any any worries there as well. That's great. And that's great to hear. I know it's one of those things that I feel like people following um, the coverage, it's, you know, it's been quite confusing to get a sense of, um, you know, what folks are dealing with in your area. So it's great to hear that, that those safeguards are in place and that, that, you know, you've been vigilant with the testing. Um, What kind of final question I wanted to touch on is, you know, kind of the ancillary benefits of a business like yours to the broader agriculture community. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, how you guys have, have been received and, you know, how you sell, see yourself kind of fitting in with other producers in the area. Um, we've been to uh, several local food expos. You know, we're involved with the Department of Agriculture and we're very connected to what's going on in, in West Virginia. And you know, and other areas. I think we're unique in this area and, you know, the southeast of mid-Atlantic that nobody else is doing this that we know about. And we we really meet a need um, to have a, a locally or regionally produced salt that's it's very unique and it's, um, you know, mineral rich. And, and I think that there's a market for us, you know, with chefs who are really looking to, to source their products locally and regionally. Uh, Sean Brock of um, Husk Restaurants in, in Charleston and Nashville, and McCrady's is, is a big proponent of ours, and um, Spike Gardy of Woodbury Kitchen in Baltimore, who is a, is a front runner of, of sourcing ingredients from independent producers, um, got in his car as soon as he heard about us and came, came down here six hours to see what we were doing. He was so excited. And so I think that it's... it's um, it's really meeting meeting a need, and as consumers become more and more aware of of their their food sources, um, it's it's important not just for salt, but for any any of their foods, and and that's really part of our mission and philosophy is to improve people's health, 
And um, if you salt your own food rather than eating processed foods, you're you're going a long way to being a healthier person. So, awesome. Well, Nancy and Lewis, thank you so much for joining us on the Farm Report today. It was really great to have you on. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for having us. Definitely. So if folks want to find out more, like I said, that website again is www.jqdsalt.com. You can also find them on Twitter at jqdsalt. And um, this program, obviously, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, is available for free. Uh, You can find us on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you believe in our work and want to support what we do, click that Donate tab and become a member today. You can also find all of our programs on iTunes and Stitcher Smart Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.